This week is brought to you by my favorite daily newsletter, The Daily Valet. Yes, there are a lot of daily newsletters, but most of them are trying to be everything to everyone, and none are really good enough. If you like menswear and fashion, which is why you're probably listening to this podcast, check out The Daily Valet from Valet Mag. The Daily Valet is a five-minute morning read that gives you everything you need to start the day through the eyes of a stylish men's magazine. Every morning, you'll get interesting product announcements, big stories, and always a little uplifting motivation. Visit thedailyvalet.com and subscribe today. Hey folks, sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong. There's something funny about adulthood that never goes away. And for me, that's insecurity. My guest this week was someone I never gave enough attention to and perhaps I was intimidated by, but well, it was because of me. I was insecure, I got it wrong, and look, I'm gonna own that right here. Right now in the world, things are all over the place and a lot of things appear out of control, but this is a conversation I'm glad I had and I'm thankful I got the opportunity to get it right with a fantastic designer and a good guy. I hope this serves as a reminder to everyone that while we may not always get things right, we can still try again. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Fred Castleberry, founder and designer of F.E. Castleberry. Fred and I discuss our parallel journeys through the world of fashion, how to be a good dad, working as a concept designer at Ralph Lauren, and how by imitating and remixing your influences, you can create something that's uniquely your own. So, Fred, it's good to talk with you. It's great to be here. Well, I'm, we're in my house. but We are. We're, we're in your home. It's good Thankfully, to have you over. You, you lovingly hosted. I'm glad you're on. You were, you were someone that I knew about and had met a lot of times, but I will go on the record that I was kind of intimidated by you, and I would even admit mm. that I don't think I liked you. Because I was just like, I don't know him. I don't like him. He always looks like this. And, and I, I'm going to be publicly honest. I'm going to apologize. Because like, you were just cool and put together. And so it was easier for me to be like, I don't know. Yeah. F that guy. And yeah. I, I don't like him. But the truth was, and I, and I say this, every time I, I'd be like, man, but he, he does look really cool. He does seem like a really cool guy. <laughs> And as we've oh chatted, my gosh, yeah. and we chatted a bunch beforehand, before we even started recording, yes. I, uh, I think we're, we have a lot of very strong uh, backstories, uh, or a lot of aligned experiences, and uh, I'm serious, I really owe you an mm. apology, I mean that. Man, that's, um, that's really sweet of you to say that, because that's, that's hard to say, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't my plan, but yeah, yeah. I, I realized it's it. Hard to say, but to be honest, like I also and take this for whatever it is, but like I felt that. Did you? I hundred percent felt that. <laughs> but look, look, look. That's that's not to say anything, right? Like that's just that was just my experience. Yeah, you know? because I think look, I think the thing that we're all asking ourselves from like the moment we leave our little class in like sixth grade if you're like me in my hometown we went to a feeder school like everyone in the same town went to the same school once you hit seventh grade okay and it was this like in texas this is in texas okay and it was like once you hit seventh grade you saw a bunch of kids you've never seen in your life okay and you're like do you like me am i cool 
Oh, God. Like, do, am I cool? Because I just spent five years back at this little elementary school, like, solidifying my place yeah. in the social uh, environment of where we're at. And I'm like, pretty popular over there. Everyone likes me. I've had five years to kind of show off. Yeah. And now uh, there's a lot of you that don't know me. Yeah. And I'm five foot nothing. All I've got is my, my cool fashion, which none of you care about. That's all I got. Yep. So I think, I think menswear, I often think menswear, uh, of menswear like middle school. You yeah. know, it, it's a lot of us asking, do you like me? Am I cool? Because uh, we see all the, and Instagram is our middle school. Yeah. And you see all these people from a distance. Um, if you're lucky enough, you, you, you make a connection with some people and you say hi. Yeah. And I think this culture of uh, acceptance and niceness is, is something that's kind of new that's coming into menswear. And I think it's an amazing thing mm-hmm. um, because it's like, look, at the end of the day, we're not here. Like, let's just stop competing. Like, we're all individuals. We're all really great people that, and also flawed people, as we have d- had discussions about. But like, I think that's the opportunity that, that makes it really interesting. It makes this a real community for us. Yeah is to connect on platforms like this, like this podcast. Like these are, this is a real thing, right? Yeah. Like this is a real thing that is creating connection uh, for yourself. Um, and it's probably this thing that you created because you kind of secretly needed it and wanted it. And it brings some sort it brings something inside of you alive. And that's kind of the reason that I've been doing my thing. Um, now your feedback about uh, feeling intimidated, that's not isolated. And I'm trying to figure out what, I'm trying to figure out what how to work on my shit with that, right? Yeah. Because it's like I I'm an introvert, so like if I seem like I'm not talking to you, it's because I'm just shy, <laughs> you know. Like okay, I need you, <laughs> I need you to come talk to me first, or else I'm just gonna be on the wall all night long, <laughs> right? Um, and and my only way to kind of attract you to come talk to me is by the way I dress. Okay. See, because that's my icebreaker. Oh man, cool hat or like cool shirt. I love that. Okay, now we're talking. You yeah, know, that's that's that was that's been my thing since I was like a kid. Like right. this is this is. If you want to call it peacock, I'm, I'm peacocking just to get you over here, because I'm not as charming as I'd like to be. I I can't come up with that quip or that retort or that joke as quickly as I would like to make you laugh in the few moments I have. Well, wait, hold on. That's fine. But the thing is, your external image presence from when you were unabashedly prep, air quote, to to polo, to all the iterations of you, which we're happy to discuss. But like, all of those things were all had their own image to them that seemed like it was super outwardly and welcoming. And, and I would say maybe I'm projecting, but like dare to say like clubbish, like, like it was Mm. own, it was its own group. So I always was like, well shit, like he's in his own world that, and I'm not cool enough to be in that world. Therefore my idea was F this guy (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, and, yeah. and because because in that in that way, instead of me trying to understand you, it was easier for me to just write you off. But what it sounds like I'm hearing is you were like, "Well, look, no, I made this because I was introverted, and I was looking for people to come into that." That yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I read this. 
Uh, a mentor told me one one time that if no if no club will have you, start your own. Okay. And and I think that's what I've been trying and seeking to do since uh, I started that uh, preppy style blog in 2009 called Unabashedly Prep. And um, which, as a side note, because I want to I want to say on this story uh, was huge. There there was everyone was making stuff at the time, but at least like not at least, but what you had made, Unabashedly Prep, was very much, it came out fully formed. And it looked fully formed when it came out. Because I remember the buttons for the next page. Do you remember this? <laughs> the buttons yeah, I mean, had <laughs> its own custom icons. Everything about Unabashedly Prep, whether you liked it or not, was fully formed, and it looked like a finished product. Yeah, I, I, and that's a, it took about nine months to do all that. Okay. And, I had started in January of 2009, and, and by September I was launching this blog, and um, and Sid Mashburn graciously allowed me to come do a shop profile, and that was like my first week of content. That's right, you so hit that, out of the gate, yeah. Hard. So so that immediately gave me like credibility with people. <laughs> they were like, "Oh, this guy's on to Sid Mashburn, amazing! Like he knows what he's talking about." Yeah. Um, and I was just so grateful to him. Uh, for allowing me to come in and like photograph his shop in, in my own little way and, and him answering, doing a short little interview with me. And, and that was in the early days, right? That was, 2000, that was 2009. Yeah. That feels like a, we've come a whole world away from that 10 years later. We have. Um, true. But yeah, I was just trying to start, uh, I'm just trying to start this club. And, but the idea is that everyone who feels any sort of, if it resonates with you, like, come on in, you know, the water's fine. You know, right? I think that's what drives me a lot right now is when we um, is to create a world that's compelling enough that people want to be a part of it in some small way, right? And if that small way is hopefully maybe a pair of shoes that we just came out with in design, then that's great. Like, yeah, I don't as much as I would love people to wear Effie Castleberry head to toe like they do Tom Brown. I understand that. That takes a lot of work to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't we also kind of feel that way about Tom Brown, though? Like, it's this club that we're not cool enough to be in because these people travel in packs in gray suits with their trousers up to their knees. And, and uh, yeah. And hopefully it's refreshing, though, if we actually get to meet one of these, these kids in that uniform and they're like a real human. Yeah. And, and they're nice or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's just about us taking the time to get to know one another. Yeah. I hope. I, no, I think you're right. I, I mean, because at least with, with like what you're making and, and all that, it's a, the Tom Brown example is a really good example because I was someone who really hated Tom Brown very, very early on, but within six months of me hating him, I was head to toe Tom Brown. And I had spent... You really went in. I spent all my money on it. I bought those stupid shoes, the freaking... And I'll, I'll be honest, they, they at the time, they were stupid for, for what I was doing. And I, it's really rude. Wait, what uh, shoes were they? They were the flipping... They were the Trickers. This this is when Trickers was making the shoes. Okay. And it was the Scotch grain wingtip with the metal toe and heel taps. Yeah. So I was walking around. By the way, those shoes were $1,500. I paid wow. those full price stupid out of one day when me and this girl got into a fight. And I was like mad depressed. This is way before 
you know, and uh, retail therapy, baby. Do, yeah, and I went in and I bought those shoes, and I was walking around, and I it was like clip clop, clip clop, and I was like, why am I doing this? And I remember I slipped down a set of subway stairs because by the way metal is not the greatest thing metal on metal when you're like trying to go down a subway stairs <laughs> i slipped down like two flights of subway stairs no. in my head to toe tom brown look that i had just spent all the money that i didn't have i put it all on a credit card that, um, that would actually be an amazing ad campaign <laughs> well i'm people, glad that you- <laughs> people busting their ass in tailored clothing it was it was bad, and I fell all the way down, and I remember this guy walked by and goes, man, what an idiot with those big shoes. And I just sat there, and I was like, yes. Yes, he's right. He's right. He's right. I don't disagree with you, sir. It, it, was, it, was a, it was a dumb thing. But the whole idea of why I did that was because I just wanted to be in that world. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be a part of it. Um, but let's, let's jump real quick. So you make Unabashedly Prep. It becomes pretty big. Pretty, pretty big. Yeah, I, I feel like we should probably put quotation marks around that, you know? I think it became um, a destination for people within a specific taste level of, of, of preppy... Uh, the, the hashtag menswear. Yeah. 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 And I had committed to posting every weekday. Yeah. Uh, I was desperately needing to escape the wedding photography business that I was using to make a living. And Unabashedly Prep was a passion project that I started as a hobby. Well, wait, because you, earlier we were talking, and I hope you don't mind, but you had said that you went to, you went to school for physics first? Uh, mechanical, well, sorry, mechanical engineering was my first major of choice. Okay. At Texas uh, A&M? Texas A&M. Go Aggies? You know, I, I, yeah, gig em. Gig okay. em, baby. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I graduated number nine in my high school class out of like 300. So, and, and I'm half Asian, right? So like... My, oh, which, ta- Taiwan. Taiwan. My mom's Taiwanese, yeah, and then my dad's okay. German, English. Uh, but I'd grown up under this misnomer that I was, like, smart. Right. You know, like, I, so I was supposed to go do smart things. Like, you're Asian, you're good at math. You know, all this stuff. So I'm, like, I'm, like living under this thing, right? Okay. I'm making straight A's my entire childhood. I'm working my ass off so that my tiger mom is, like, proud of me. And Wait, what did you say? Tiger mom? My tiger mom. Okay. You know, that's that's an Asian stereotype of an Asian mother who is like... Okay, you just motion strict. like cracking the whip on Yeah, you. yeah, cracking the whip. Uh, more, it's more like a stick. They got a stick in their hand and they're like okay. smacking your... you were forced to have good grades, it sounds like. Um, Yeah, my mom put so... I feel... And I love you, mom. I love you with all my heart. She's going to listen because she she's absolutely supports everything that I do. God she's, bless her. She's my Same number with one, my mom. And she's my number one fan. I love her to death. She's such a great mom. But growing up, she had such high hopes, right? Because I was, I guess I was the first one in my family to go to college. Oh, okay. Yeah. Congrats. And um, so I think there, I think there was just a lot of, you know, my mom, I think, got great grades, and my dad did not. So my mom was like, you're going to be one of us. And so, You're saving the family. Yeah, uh, as much, yeah, as much as you can say that. And so I went to college. When it was time to go to college, uh, nobody ever told me I could make a living in the arts. Nobody ever, and, but that was my life. Drawing, painting, sculpt, you know, clay, pottery. I was in all of that, and that's what I loved. And I identified as a little art kid. Okay. But I was also making great grades, you know? So it was like, when it comes time to become an adult, uh, you're going to go off and continue to make great grades in the real world. 
Right. So I'm like, oh, okay, Texas A&M, mechanical engineering, you know, scholarship, all that jazz. And then... Um, oh, congrats. I mean, we had to. We barely had any money growing up. So I was like, you're either going to get scholarships and loans or... <laughs> Wow. Oh, you're not going. Yeah. So that was a big part of it too, right? Okay. With the great grades, it was about that. So uh, I, I, I do the mechanical engineering. Uh, I realize uh, during orientation that I'm in a, I, I'm literally in orientation with 98% Indian kids. And they're like, hey, just FYI, as a mechanical engineering major, you are going to be spending nights and weekends studying. Mm. And I was like, I'm out. Mm. Like this, this is not for me. Like I, I want a social life. So I went and changed my major the next day and got into business school. Well, that's still pretty hard to do, right? Yeah. I, you know, I, again, I think it was, um, it just worked out. Yeah. I was like, I, I, I don't want to do this. I want to do business school. And so, so you're in business school. Yeah. Got my degree in finance. Okay. Jeez. I know. And you finished school? I finished school. Yeah, I finished school okay. early, actually. Semester early. They, wow. had, they had these things where you could take CLEP tests, um, and that's basically a test to show competence in a subject matter that you haven't officially taken a class in yet. Okay. And so, because I got... Uh, and, and I just want to blow past this as I say it. Sure. Because I got married when I was 19. Okay. And still in college. Yeah. I was like, time to step up the pace on college so that I can get out there and get a paycheck. Okay. So I took a lot, I took a semester's worth of CLEP tests, right? I CLEPed out, I tested out of 12 to 15 hours of class. So each class being about 1200 bucks, I was like, I'm saving major money over oh, here. Oh, because it was a finance thing. So you were saving money I'm, you know, I'm, using that finance degree. Yeah. I'm, I'm CLEPing out of uh, liberal arts stuff, you know? Oh, Mark, uh, biology i'll clip out of that let me just oh study God. for a weekend and like hit all the high points so as a uneducated non-degree holding person sit, sitting before you is that a common thing with other schools like can is that you like, can only do it within the school that you're in okay so like a clip test would not transfer okay but because i was like i'm gonna finish here i'll take a clip test and, and get credit for this okay yeah so uh interesting yeah and then and then by 24 i was my marriage was kind of falling apart, um, and then I was divorced at 25, and then that's kind of when the person, as you kind of know, who's like in fashion, into the, into art and culture, and just into that stuff, that's when that person kind of came back to life. Right. That's so, when I kind of got back in touch with who I was as a kid. This phoenix from the ashes here. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I was. I, I just got back in touch with who I was before there were bills to be paid. Right. You know. And so you're you're full in photography. Yeah, I quit my job at the bank. I was doing. Um, you working at a bank? I was working at a bank. Yeah. Were you getting paid? Yeah, I mean, not not great. That was another disillusionment. When I was working at a bank, I was like, I have to have a degree to do this. It was like, oh, do you want to open a checking account? I can <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you're not help, like I can help you. This is not Glengarry Glen Ross type no, thing. This is it. This is in Texas. Okay, um, this is not on Wall Street. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I was very disillusioned by that. I was like, I'm going to become a trader, and um, and then I was like, I, I visited New York uh, during my senior year in college. Right. So I have a family at this point. I'm like, I can't raise a family here. Right. And that was that was it. 
spring, I came home from spring break and I'm like, I got to figure out a way to do this in Texas. And then I ended up working retail banking, hugely disillusioned. So I'm like behind a desk. Do you want to open a checking account? Hey, by the way, you should open a savings account too. It's free. Yeah. You know, we're trying to like meet our numbers. It's terrible. Oh, it's terrible. Geez. But that's where, I, that's where I started getting into suiting though. Oh, because you had to wear a suit? Yeah. So I started like really paying attention when I was wearing to work. Oh, damn. So that was kind of the germ seed of that. Did people, when you, so you're making unabashedly prep, you're working, were you still working at the bank? No, no, I'd left at that point. So okay. like, um, just for timeline reference, I leave the bank probably 2007. Okay. I'm now um, really learning photography, shooting weddings, I'm booking weddings, traveling parts of the world, doing that. Traveling parts of the world? Yeah, like there was one year I went to Hawaii three times. Really? Yeah, and the last time, it sounds so, I sound like such an asshole saying this, but like, I sound like such a jerk saying this, but like, by the third time, I was like, I don't want to go to Hawaii again. Yeah. <laughs> like, who doesn't want to go to Hawaii? It's the most beautiful place in the United States. Right. Um, but I, I was doing a lot of traveling for that, and um, the flips, and, and it was meeting a lot of great people, and I was working for myself. It was, it was really exciting. It was really exciting. But um, after three years, I kind of got tired of, of doing this wedding thing because I had wanted to shoot weddings from the get-go, like a Ralph Lauren advertorial or something. Yeah. Like black tie, white tinted reception in the Hamptons or Woods yeah. Hole, Massachusetts. That's what got me excited. Okay. And then when I couldn't do that, um, it would really bum me out. So I, I started trying to, I booked, I started booking more and more of those clients as the years went past and I would want to get published in like wedding, Martha Stewart weddings. That was like, that's a, that's a milestone for a lot of people in that industry is like getting published and, and working with couples who want to get published. Right. Because, oh. because if you're working with a couple who wants to get published, now they're spending like half a mil. Really? Oh yeah. 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 It's a whole thing. Jeez. It's a lot of money because p- being published in that world is about all the details and, okay. it's, and it's a little bit about, it's a little bit about like, who you are as a couple. Like, right. do you have couple, do you have cachet as a couple? Are you like, no, are you in the art world? Right. Most of us are like, uh, <laughs> no, uh, let's go to the justice of the peace. Oh, oh yeah. Like you're in the art world. Oh, this person's the curator. Yeah. They, they, at... need, a, yeah, they need a little story. They need a little angle. Um, okay. and it's for people who care about that stuff. So, um, wow. but that's where you would get great images, right? Because, um, as a photographer, you don't have any say over what happens in that world. You're there to like document what's already right. there. So I kind of like my little tendency to want to create a world, it started kind of flaring up there okay. because I, I started not liking not having control over that. So I started doing the blog, opened up some fashion photography opportunities for me there. And so I started getting to kind of do a little bit more like set design stuff for like what, was going to be in the picture. And I liked that a lot more. And right. I started um, shooting, I started shooting all the stuff for the, for the blog that I was publishing. And I think that kind of, that was a little advantage I had. Photography has always been this great little skill set that I've been able to use. Right. And it's not something I've ever wanted. To, I, I never wanted to have like the spotlight in my, in my life, but it's been this great little companion that no matter what I've done, I've been able to use that little skill especially launching my brand, like being able to do all my own photography and it, and it be good. That's a huge blessing that I often don't think about enough as a blessing. Right. Cause I have friends that 
that are doing great stuff. They're doing better than me in business, but they don't have good photography. Right. I mean, cause your, your photography is very, very good. I, 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 I agree. Thanks. No, it, it's good. It's, um, it's been, it's been a great, it's been a great companion. Yeah. Right. So you do that, then you end up work. How do you get, at, get the job at Ralph Lauren? Ooh, that was, that, I mean, that was an incredible time in life at that point, right? Because, and it was all, it was like the, it's like the internet and fashion met up and created the wild, wild west. Right. It was like, anything's possible. Nobody knows anything. <laughs> <laughs> New York True. is like, the, the establishment, the fashion establishment is like, should we be paying attention to the internet? I don't know, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Nah, man. Yes, no. Yeah, you know, so... I think rugby was fortunate to have um, Lee Norwood as its kind of vice president of design and the guy who was running it. And Lee was very forward thinking when it came to that stuff. And Lee was very, um, he was very, he had a very collaborative mind. And, And it was because of Lee reaching out after I'd been putting up uh, content and kind of showing I guess just showing my heart, right? Like that was what that blog was. It was just kind of showing this thing that I loved. And it was about, Unabashedly Prep was just as much about learning mm-hmm. about that subculture and that style as it, as it was about sharing it. You know, I was learning, I was only two or three steps ahead of anyone else who was reading my blog at the time. Right. That's why I was doing it. It was like a self-education thing as well as a, uh, a, a documentation thing out of like reverence. And um, I got invited into circles and parties that otherwise I would not have been um, because I was kind of the outsider documenting these folks in their natural environs. Right. And, um, and Lee, because I posted every day, there was a following that was garnered and like it eventually got their attention. I remember the first time uh, wherever had this like whoa moment about like the internet and people in New York actually have seen this blog was when um, Antonio Changoli left a comment on my blog and he said, Hey man, love what you're doing. If you're ever in New York, I think the guys would get a kick out of meeting you. By the way, I designed for rugby. Uh, Kenny, God love you. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, and I was like, I'm going to be in New York next month. I had no plans to be in New York. I, was like, I'm gonna be, <laughs> I will be there next month. Um, well, by the time I got there, Antonio had left to go to Michael Bastion. Yeah. And so he introduced me to John Yang, which was his boss. And um, so I get up there. John gives me the tour. I'm blown away. There, he, he, I'm walking past the mood board. Yeah. It has like my images on it. Of like street style, that's was, pretty cool. I was like, "What?" That's pretty cool. It was a pretty cool moment. And then I meet Lee, and Lee and I just kind of we establish a rapport. We connect over family. We connect over our faith. We connect over just our love for clothes and fashion. We connect over growing up in the South, and just kind of connect over like, "Hey, man, um, you know, I like you. You're cool. Like, what's going on? What's going out?" what's going on out there in the world, right? Like right. when you work at Ralph Lauren, you're like 
it's a bubble. It's a bubble. Yeah. And you're like, hey, what's the news from the outside world? Come tell us. <laughs> like, we have no idea what's going on. Yeah. And so we would just talk and we would just chat. And I would just be enamored by this um, office at 650 Madison Avenue. And I was like, wow, I cannot believe I'm here. And it was just cool. It was so cool. I was... I was so I was so enamored by the whole thing. Well, Lee and I, Lee kept seeking out opportunities to collaborate, and we did a couple little projects mm-hmm. um, over the over the over the next year and a half. And um, and then one day I got word that the conceptual designer position that uh, that Lee oversaw and that worked directly under Lee um, was, was had now been vacated, and that uh, one of my f- designer friends there was like. Uh yeah, that position just became open. I think you should call Lee and tell him that you wanna that you wanna interview. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? Uh, I can't do that. Like, am I am I even qualified? Like, what what yeah. is this? And I was like, I think I should wait for him to contact me. You know what I mean? Like, you think you're? Yeah, I think. Yeah, so I just waited. Two days later, Lee calls me. Oh, really? Two days oh, later. Oh, that's sick. Yeah, he was he was thinking the same thing, I guess, and you know, and he just asked me. He's like, "Hey, man, um, this position just opened up, and uh, I think you'd be great for it. Would you ever entertain the idea of moving to New York and and coming to work? Yeah, for Ralph and and me. And I remember exactly where I was." in Fort Worth, in the courtyard of my apartment. And I was like, I'm going to take a day to think about this. And then we hung up. And like, I was in. Oh, damn. Hey, everyone. I want to take a second to talk to you all about 316 and thank them for supporting the show this week. Right now, more than ever, you want to support a brand that not only makes good stuff, but cares deeply for others. And I'm constantly inspired by how 316 runs their business and creates their products. From how they interact with their customers to take care of their suppliers and employees. Some brands do well, but 316 does better. 316 makes phenomenal jeans in the USA with custom denim from Japan. I love their CT model, their custom taper. It ticks every box for me, higher rise and a subtle taper. It works great with all my casual wear and my suiting. But if that's not your fancy, check their t-shirts and see why the Wall Street Journal recommends them for their perfect fit and length. Visit 316.com to learn more and stay tuned for an upcoming project we're working on just for listeners. That's the number three, S-I-X-T-E-E-N.com. I was in. But I had to, I had to think long and hard about like what that was going to do to my relationship with my kids, right? At the time, they're 10 and 11. Oh, Yeah. And and that was hard, you know? But at the end of the day, I was, the reality of the truth is that I was dying inside in Texas. And I had no, I really didn't have a community down there. I really didn't have any, I didn't have like super close friends. Um, I was traveling a lot for my photography gigs. So that made it tough to be a part of any sort of community. You know, like with what you're saying, I I definitely identify with that, especially as a parent. And it makes me wonder, 
about my parents and the professional like desires and career, you know, motives and drives that they had. And it makes me wonder, and I think about this all the time, especially now, like what are the things that my parents turned down or did? I remember talking to my mom the other day and she was like, yeah, you know, my dad was in the music business and she was like, you know, we had all these time, all these opportunities for us to move to Nashville or for us to go to LA and he didn't do it because he wanted to be around you or he did, you know, and it's, it's weird because I wonder if I deprived my dad from opportunities that I wish he would have taken, Mm. you know? Yes. I I don't know. I mean, that's a whole other thing, but it does make me wonder and, and actually have empathy for my parents. Yes. That they absolutely did the best they could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, every parent, they're just trying yeah. their best. We're, we're trying to do our best. Yeah. And for me, coming to New York was me honestly trying to do my best. Because, look, if I wasn't going to be... If you're going to be... A, a, I think if you're going to be a good parent, not being a martyr mm. is part of that equation. Mm. Because I think oftentimes if you declare yourself to be a, part, a martyr and you put yourself in that position, you have to be really careful not to ever get bitter about it. Yeah. Because I thought about that. I was like, you know what? Look, at the end of the day, I, dad's got to take care of dad to be the best dad that I can be. Yeah. And that means this, for my soul, if I don't take this opportunity, I'm always going to ask, what if? Yeah. And... I'm always going to wonder. Like, the only reason I would be staying in Texas would would be so that I could see my kids every other weekend, right? And one night during the week for dinner. And I was like, I'll move to New York and just fly home once a month for a long weekend, and yeah, like, we'll just try to figure out a way and make it work. Be a better person when you're around. Be a better person. Be alive inside. Be inspired. Be do. Be connected to a purpose, right? Which I think kids need to see that in their dad. Yeah. They need to see a strong male figure that is rooted in making a dent in this world that they have a conviction about. Yeah. So, I think about all of that in 24 hours and I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I gotta go. I, lo- I gotta go. We're gonna, we're gonna do this. Okay. Um, and I wanted to be able to sit down and tell them like, Whenever they were growing up and they had a choice that they had to make about a profession and yeah. like, you know what? Your dad had to make a really tough choice when you were 10 and 11. When like the opportunity of a lifetime called, your dad stepped up to the plate. Yeah. He took a risk. He knew it was going to cost him some things and he didn't know the exact cost of that because I wouldn't have to pay it till years down the road. And, but I went for it and I moved up here. Yeah. 2012. Now, uh, less than a year later, rugby shut down, and then I was, <laughs> then I was, and then everyone was laid off. <laughs> and then oh, everyone was laid god. off. Couldn't have seen that coming. Oh god! But heaven. but um, that's just the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. And um, you know, I started I started Fe Castleberry shortly thereafter that because as a concept designer, you're not really hireable anywhere else because that's a that's a position that like only Ralph Lauren has. <laughs> Shoot. Yeah, because what? it's you're dealing with like dreams. You're creating a world as a conceptual designer, and um, most most fashion brands uh, 
that are not luxury fashion houses. They're that they're run by merchants. Right. Yeah. So what sweaters what sweaters sold last year? What colors were most popular? Let's redo those and maybe add a couple more in. Right. And then Ralph Lauren's like, we're making a movie. Yeah. What's the world? So so you start you, you so you started your own brand. This is 2013 or whatever now, right? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I started the germ of that before I went to Ralph Lauren. Okay. And then obviously I have to put that on hold as I was going to go there. Because I'm like, hey, I'll go to Ralph Lauren University for four years. Yep. Just get, 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 the, get the hard and fast education. And then, and then maybe I'll go back to do my own thing. Okay. But um, instead, after nine months, it's like, well, you're all expelled. Get out of here. Jeez. Okay. It was right. Oh, man. I'll, I'll never forget it because it was the week of Hurricane Sandy in New York. Oh, I remember that. That's when they laid us off. <laughs> Hurricane, <laughs> Hurricane Sandy. Hey, nobody can come to work today because the subways are flooded, but you don't need to because uh, you don't work here anymore. That You know what? Like, I don't think anyone really, unless you've been laid off... I don't think that's a feeling that anyone can truly understand because it, at least for me, like I've been, I've been laid off before and it, there's a, because I already have identity and body and all that other sort of issues, I felt angry. There's like all these stages of grief that hit. You feel mad, you feel depressed, you have, and it's only and I, I'm so grateful for a city like New York and for, th- thank God, like other friends and other people who kind of help me kind of pick your life back up together. Because the truth of the matter is, and this is the, you know, the, the tough side, the tough thing is like people get laid off all the time. So it's like, get over it and get a new job. But if you get laid off and someone tells you that, like, I've never had a bigger middle finger in my life where it's just like, you know, like, what do you know? Like, I remember when I had lost my job, all these people came over to me and they're like, but Jeremy, you know, you always, you're always going to find something. You're always going to figure something out. Too soon, Jeremy. I know. (laughs) Too soon. I know. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, I'm going to find something like, no, because you know what? Meanwhile, while I was working wherever I was working, I applied for all these other jobs and nothing happened. So don't fucking tell me that everything is going to be okay when right now nothing is okay. Yeah. But. Totally get that. You're like, right now, 2020, we're sitting in your amazing apartment that looks like the set of a movie, and, you know, you look cool, and you're obviously at a place in your life where whether or not you feel successful, the world thinks you are, and, and you are successful. that's what matters most. Well, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you are, and so when you look at this now, you are okay. Yeah, well, we're all going to be okay. And I think we're all okay in a community of people that are okay, right? Sure. I think what softened the blow of that layoff was knowing that I wasn't alone. Yeah. Like, everyone at rugby got laid off. It wasn't just you. <laughs> so it's not, like, it's not like, oh, you suck. You're terrible at this. It was... Yeah, that was me. It was literally... <laughs> um, we're losing $15 million a year on this brand. We can't afford any of this. So, yeah. And good, if it wasn't for you, good luck out there. Off white would have never existed. Off white, <laughs> yeah. Pyrex vision. Pyrex me. vision. <laughs> so uh, that softened the blow. But also, what softened the blow was I was already used to working for myself. 
Yeah. You know I mean, what I mean? You like, already had the like, entrepreneur yeah, mindset. I already, w- I just went back to working for myself. Yeah. So it wasn't like this, this rug got pulled out from under me. No, what the luxury was, was having a paycheck every two weeks that was an amazing paycheck. Yeah. And it was extremely validating. Yeah. And made New York City fun. Because New York City is really only fun when you have money. <laughs> also true. When you don't have money, it's you hate everything. Yeah. So I just went back to doing that, and and you know it was, yeah. So that was 2012, 2013. But look at this; it's 2020. You're pretty far. It's 2020. We've come a long ways. We've just. Uh, moved out of doing only made-to-measure tailored clothing to having a footwear collection we're working to get funded on Kickstarter and, you know, starting to do the ready-to-wear thing, which was kind of always what I wanted to do. You yeah. Know, I think eventually there's um, there's a shop that gets to, gets to happen that carries my brand as well as third-party stuff that we like. And really? Ho- hopefully it feels like a world. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what... Um, I think what I saw at rugby uh, in the retail concept was great. I think what I saw at Sid Mashburn uh, was inspiring. And I love that. I love their husband and wife duo. I certainly want that and aspire to try to wait for that and, yeah. and have that in my life. Um, but yeah, I definitely want like a, a physical space where we can have people and have parties and, and have people over and make it feel like a great place they want to hang out not make it feel pretentious at all, right? Bring some of that Southern hospitality up to New York and, and yeah. just create this world that wouldn't look too different than what my living room looks like, uh, which currently has pink walls and some scotch situations happening. And You do have a lot of booze. <laughs> <laughs> I never drink it, by the way. Yeah, I... The I feel other... like we should be drinking some, but we're, no. drinking, we're drinking coffee. We're good. Well, I'm, yeah. We're good. I, I love to have a drink, but anytime... I have the opportunity to have a drink. I'm always like, hey, I'll just have something else. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think, uh, yeah, we're totally fine with alcohol, without alcohol. Um, we're good. So there is a bit of an elephant in the room that I also want to Oh, what's out. the elephant? And so there is a love appreciation for Wes Anderson. It feels oh, yeah. Like, and so much of your work that I would be you know, a fool if, if we don't at least discuss this. Let's discuss. How Love did it. this happen? Because I also think it, at one point it used to be, oh, it looks kind of like Wes Anderson. And now, you know, the, 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 the Kickstarter video, the, the shoe video, the imagery, it is very much Wes Anderson. W- why is that? Yeah. The short answer is, um, I, well, I'm a huge fan of a couple different film auteurs, right? So like Tarantino, Wes Anderson, Woody Allen. Yeah, it's tough to be a Woody Allen fan, but yeah. I don't advertise that one, but like I, I watch his films and fashion plays such a beautiful role in all of his films. Yeah. Um, that's what I appreciate about Wes Anderson's films. Yeah. Um, well, no. they're world builders. The <clears throat> they're thing, wor- they're world builders, absolutely. Yeah. And what I love about Tarantino's films are, uh, I love the violence in them, the unrealistic but hyper- uh, you know the the violence in there is is comically funny. Yeah, and then I like also like how he rewrites history, and he takes a lot of liberties with that. I right. appreciate that. So like you know, there's not everything West does, and I'm a huge fan of his films. The first film I ever saw was The Royal Tenenbaums, and the thing that the thing that I personally don't like about 
Wes Anderson's films. If we want to talk about that. Don't like. Okay. Yeah, let's I, hear I that. don't like that he like the French Dispatch, which is coming out. Yeah. Takes place in a fictional French town. I don't like that. Why is that? Because I like that be somewhat grounded in reality. Oh. Like, just make it a real French town. Well, but almost all Wes Anderson films aren't really grounded in reality. Right, which I, which I don't like. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's like, true. The world is big enough to, to have a real town that you have it in, and you can just kind of... But that's what I appreciate about, appreciate about Tarantino. Tarantino does take a real town, but he just rewrites the history around it. Right. Once, once upon a time in Hollywood, he takes the Sharon Tate murders and kind of has liberty with that. Inglorious Bastards, he yep. takes a real war and has, and he plays in that. But he, yeah. he, Tarantino grounds his world in a real event and place and then he has fun with it. Yeah. Anderson doesn't do that and I don't like that. Right. You know, when you watch the real Tenenbaums, it's obviously New York, but he never says New York. He hides the Statue of Liberty behind Pagoda. <laughs> he has Pagoda all the characters. Yeah, the Pagoda the car- yeah, yeah, and um, he and, and I, rem- I remember Gene Hackman going, "Why are you? You're blocking the Statue of Liberty with with having Pagoda in, in, in the middle of the frame there." Yeah, and Anderson's like, oh, I, "I don't, I don't, I don't want to show that. Like, I want to hint that it's a city like New York, but I don't want to explicitly uh, indicate that." So, how does their design and stuff influence what you what you've made because i think you know the recent the video has yeah. a lot of the the similar styles the the deadpan the the kind of quiet yeah. and for the record humor. for the record that deadpan is because i can't act <laughs> so i'm literally trying to deliver these lines as straight as possible but no it's but it's good like because it here's the thing there's one thing to make something that's almost like an homage and you're like oh okay but like again to to jump back to our the very beginning of this conversation, all the stuff that I've seen come out of your you and your personal brand, which is an awful term these days, but it's the truth, is very much fully formed. Like it looks complete. It looks that video I watched like five or six times, and it's done really, really, really well. So the reason. Um a, I really appreciate you saying that um, because I've been staring at it for the last four months and I just have nitpicked it to death, but I'm but glad. But no one else in that world, I, I want to stay on that, but no one else in that world would spend that much time yeah. to make that video. Four months to make a video? Yeah, because, um, you know, we had to find the right people to color it. We had to find... So you did color correction on your oh, video? 100%. We had no, to find no the one right, else is doing this We had to find the clothes. right person to do the, the voiceover, the, the ADR stuff, you know, when I'm narrating. So you did ADR? We on did this? ADR, yeah. Damn it, man. Yeah. So why did you why did you go to such painstaking because, detail? Because this is this is because I just want it to be good. Like that's I want everything I to do I want everything I do to be good. You know Touché. what I mean? Like I just have <laughs> I have a high taste level. Yeah. So like when I'm and, and if you don't aim for the stars, you'll never make it to the moon. Oh. You know what I mean? So like yeah, I, I, I just watched Moonrise Kingdom last night. Okay. For the hundredth time, whatever it is, and I'm still learning and noticing new things about this genius I consider to be Wes Anderson. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm still being rewarded for this hundredth and one viewing of this film. I want all my photographs to feel that way. I want my photographs to be 
rewarding you for multiple viewings. I would like that little video that I made to reward you for multiple viewings. I've seen it seriously five or six times. And um, I just, I'm, you know, I just resonate. And I guess that's what every, uh, I guess that's what I guess that's what people like about Alessandro Micheli, right? With Gucci, is that he's a he's an auteur. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to say he's got he wants to create a world he's mm-hmm. everything in the frame is controlled and it's there for a reason and it feels like a house that you're just going into different rooms each season and exploring oh this is a cool different room oh this mm-hmm. but it's still the same house and i i i i, I operate like that and i want to operate like that on a on a much bigger scale eventually you know with the physical space and um i, I don't know i mean yeah i just wanted it to be really good i was like I, I don't want to. I want to make the best video that Kickstarter's ever seen for like a brand launch or whatever. Yeah, and and I think the reason, obviously, the reason it feels like that, and I I feel nothing. Um, I have no qualms about how close it may or may not feel to Wes Anderson, and there's a couple reasons why. There's a lot of people that don't know who Wes Anderson are, and those are young kids. Mm-hmm. So they're going to discover Wes's work because maybe they saw this film. Okay, but I've also seen. Uh, here's the thing: when you know Wes's inspirations, his muses, and his sources, 1960s French stuff, that stuff, Peanuts, the animated thing, Charles like, Schultz. Yeah, when you start to know and you start to study where he is inspired from. By the way, also from Texas. Just also from that. Texas. Yeah. So yeah. I, uh, there's a lot of like you know, a lot of vibes happening there for me. But when you study, you start to see. Like when you watch uh, a Hard Day's Night, the Beatles film, uh-huh. Wes copied that frame for frame on the train when the Beatles are on the train. He copied that frame for frame from the Darjeeling Limited. Really? Like blocking everything. You're just like, okay, yeah, I see how the creative process works now. Like what uh, I'm what I'm doing is completely fine. Okay. When I go see Picasso's 1932. Uh, exhibit in london it's the early years of his work and it's like picasso was copying this person and that and you see that in this piece of work he is a very good example of an artist who really evolved yeah i agree and and, what and a lot you, of it was through and what you realize and at copying, the end yeah. of the day is this whole creative process is about falling in love with things that you love yeah emulating that and then eventually it becomes your own thing with enough voices and inspirations that have woven into it. So I really don't mind that people are like, oh, it looks just like a Wes Anderson film. I'm like, yeah, because I study the hell out of that. Right. Like, I study yeah. all of this. And I'm okay because this is the first little short film thing we did. I want to make a lot more. I, You know... I have a fantasy that I'll direct a full-length feature dark caper comedy someday. Where really? I, yeah, where I costume design the whole thing. I write it with some of my Hollywood buddies and like they're in you, it. You do have a Hollywood buddies. I mean... I, I do have I have a few Hollywood buddies and I'm very thankful for them. And I'm thankful that they want to collaborate on some of these little silly fashion films. But I want to make fashion films that have a little plot to them. That have right. a little like... A little thing, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I want this. I want the world to have characters in it that people like. Maybe get invested in it a little bit, right? I don't know. Film, film is so fun, but what makes it tough is it's so collaborative and it takes a long time. It does take a long time, you know, compared to making a photograph. Ooh. <laughs> 
Well, and that's, so, that was your world before then, right? So Yeah, so it's a very different thing. And um, I could see myself, uh, I loved directing this. I loved doing the creative direction and, the, and, the, and doing a lot of the directing on this short film that we did. It was so fun to set up the shots and be like, oh my God, this is a beautiful shot. We shot at the Joseph Cheney factory, which... You which know, is where the shoes are made. It's one of the factories. We're, we're, oh, okay. we're using like three. Um, but when I saw their factory, I was like, oh my God, this, this is the setting. Like it was just stuck in time yeah. and it was beautiful. And um, the church brother, the church cousins were kind enough to let us do that. And I hope we made something that made them proud that we, uh, I hope it made them proud that they decided to let us shoot there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a very different, it's a very different type of filming that we did there. You know, it's set to fast paced music and quick cuts. And, you know, most of the time when you see these, like we went to Italy to like make the most luxurious shoes and it's like orchestral music playing in the background. It's slow motion. Ken Burns. Yeah. Ken Burns. I'm like, I'm like telling the church guys, I was like, just, just please trust us. Like we're going to do something fun. And hopefully that was the case. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I love eventually, what I'm doing will just be known as my own thing. In the early stages, I'm okay with people making comparisons to, to, to my source material. I think as we get, I think as I start to push some of the more obscure source material that I have and pay attention to, to the forefront, those things will make its way in. Um, but I'm, I, you know, in talking about Wes Anderson, every time I go back and I look at uh, the Royal Tenenbaums, that film is actually a huge piece of educational material for me uh, early on just because of what's in it. Like, Ethylene Tenenbaum, she's carrying a, a Kelly bag. Margot Tenenbaum is carrying a Birkin bag. These bags are $15,000, $20,000. Margot Tenenbaum is wearing a Fendi custom fur coat. Uh the tailoring in that movie is impeccable. I mean... Have you ever gone to Mr. Ned and got a suit made? I have not, no. That supposedly was his tailor. That is, yeah. 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 And you can tell by that little notch lapel that he does for yeah. him. Um, but I just love... I love not only... I love how much tailoring and clothing is, is close to, to Wes's heart and just his life. Mm-hmm. And I love that he presents it so beautifully on film. And I love that he just has a complete control over the world that, um, it's now come to the point where like Wes Anderson creates a visceral reaction within people. I agree. Love or hate, but there's, you're not in between. And I think he is one of, uh, our country's great film auteurs, if not one of, if not the, the guy. Um, but you know, he's up there with, Tarantino, Scorsese, uh, the Coen brothers, you know, those are all guys that I feel like when you're watching their films, you know, yeah, it's a Coen brothers film. It's a Tarantino film. And, and I like that. I want people to, I guess when they see a picture of mine, I want them to be able to know that's a Castleberry photo. Yeah. And because of the, you know, because every time I take a, a shot at a restaurant where somebody's eating food at a table, the salt shaker is always knocked over. Oh, damn. Every photo. <laughs> but that's my little... That's for me. That's just a fun little thing that I put in there that's like fun for me. I don't know. It makes me laugh. 
But oh, wow. Yeah, so it's huge. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I'm very much looking forward to the new film. I will say that I tend to like his older stuff, Rushmore, uh, The Tenenbaums, uh, The Life Aquatic, hugely underrated. Life Aquatic is a, a what about Bottle Rocket? Did you ever like that? I mean, that's the first. That's the first one, yeah. I, um, it's one that I've come to appreciate, but yeah. I think it's, I think when you saw Rushmore, which is his, second film yeah and that was the one that really put him on the map that was the one where you started to see some of those uh tropes as we would call them now Mm -hmm. those are the things we that's the movie you saw started to see some of these um wes anderson fingerprint moments happen that he started carrying over to his future films right because he simply liked them he thought they worked you know, I think the way he approached some of those things was very natural. He was like, I just like the way that we did that tracking shot in the last film, and I thought it worked for us. Let's do it again here. And I think for a lot of those things, um, it's that, and then it's also him pulling from his, you know, French New Wave influences on how certain things were done mm-hmm. um, with text on the screen or whatever else. And um, yeah, so I think I'm, I'm allowing myself to go through my own copy, 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 creative process, and then until it becomes your own thing. Um, I'm allowing myself to go through that without any sort of listening to what other people may be saying. Right. Like, oh, that's very Wes Anderson. Okay, great. That's a great compliment. Thanks. Right. Yeah. Go watch Go watch all his films. <laughs> like, what do you want me to tell you? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. Wes Anderson doesn't do fashion. Well, he does not have a fashion line. That is Wes true. Anderson does, Wes Anderson is a filmmaker. So like you telling me that I'm very Wes Anderson and I'm doing this in this industry and he's in that industry, like, okay, like maybe I'm okay with that for right now. Yeah. But like eventually, um, and here's the thing, a lot of designers have taken inspiration from his films. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? Like, but they'll do it for one season. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not doing it for one season. I just... <laughs> I'm just trying to say a thing, right, uh, over and over. Right. And, and I hate that fashion moves as fast as it does, and I, and I refuse to kind of move along that pace. Well, I mean, it's, it, the stuff that you're making looks good. It does look, at the end of the day, in, inspired or not, it looks good. Yeah, it's, thanks. It's, yeah. I and, mean, and, you know, and I think as we keep going, um, we'll keep doing things that, that move us further and further away, I think, from some of those comparisons. Yeah. But in the meantime, I'm perfectly fine uh, with some of those comparisons because I know by looking at people like Picasso and even Anderson himself that you move on from those initial muses and inspirations. Uh, you move, your, your, your fingerprint becomes a little, little lighter mm. as you move further into your own journey. Mm. Right. So, um, yeah. Nice. All right, Fred, thank you. Thank you so much. This was really good. Thanks, Jeremy. All right, see you. You've been listening to Blamo. Special thanks to my favorite morning newsletter, The Daily Valet, for supporting us this week. The Daily Valet is a five-minute morning read that gives you everything you need to start the day through the eyes of a stylish men's magazine. Every morning you get interesting product announcements, big stories, and a little uplifting motivation. It's everything you need to start your day. Visit thedailyvalet.com and subscribe today. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're edited by Brendan Finn and produced by Blamo Media. 
Follow along with us on Instagram, at Blamo Podcast, and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. If you want even more Blamo, head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo to join the Blam fam. You'll get access to additional interviews, a community Slack, special events, and more. But best of all, you're supporting the show. Try it. It'll feel good. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.